Welcome to episode 70 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid City, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. Swamp <laughs> it's. You know, holiday season right now, which means it's also Oscar season right now, mm-hmm. which means there's not a whole lot in the theaters that I care about right now. <laughs> yeah, it's been slim pickings. Yeah, so I've been like at home watching a lot of like movies on streaming, like catching up with like 2018 films that I missed earlier in the year. How are you doing on that? What, as far as finding good stuff to watch? Well, yeah, or... like are you scrambling right now to catch up on 2018 movies or like you feel like pretty confident that you've seen a lot of like the major stuff you were excited. I, about. I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I haven't really even worried about that. Honestly, I did finally see Phantom thread from 2017, from 2017. <laughs> yeah. So I'm caught up on that. Yeah. And that was amazing. But no, I haven't like gone out of my way to probably, I should probably do that soon. Yeah. I think now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> also like Brittany described this thing last episode where, we watched a bunch of movies about pregnant men was like the topic last time. How many you got junior. Yeah. And then we watched one that Joan Rivers directed where Billy Crystal gets pregnant. That Whoa. was like really bad. Really? <laughs> yeah, it, was horrible. it sounds bad, but I'm interested. Yeah. And then we watched one other and there were a few that were hard to find. It was like a whole thing, but she was describing at the end of that, like, Oh, after Halloween, I've watched so many trashy horror movies and I'm ready to start watching good movies again. Mm hmm. And after today, so this is like the second like super trashy episode in a row, yeah. I'm feeling the same thing because we're about to talk about some like real like bargain bin garbage today. Well, and that's why I tried to pick an actual like good movie for the movie of the minute because at first I was like, oh, I'm going to pick something bad to kind of go with the theme. And then I was like, I can't watch any more bad movies. dude. <laughs> I had to tap out. Yeah. I think the end of the year is probably the good time to like take in a few, though. You know? Yeah. Well, what have you been watching lately? So I did watch cam the other night and i loved it me too it reminded me so much of like a brian de palma flick mixed with this like technophobic yeah we've talked about like unfriended and those it was like a perfect mash of those together and um i really really liked it i think it'll probably be on my top 10 it instantly shot up to like at least my top three for the year i really another thing i do in december is i go back and rewatch everything on my list and like reorganize it. But that one's definitely very high up. Really? So you, you really liked it as well. I mean, I'm obsessed with the unfriended, like technophobic user interface horror where it's like you're watching someone's computer screen as the point of view. Cam does a really good job of starting off that way. Like the first scene is this cam girl doing her show and getting like tip money Mm. and it escalates to this like horrific thing where she's being asked to like basically mutilate herself. And it played a lot like that um, first scene in scream where it's like a short film introduction to the movie. Yeah. Uh, And you get like the whole thesis sort of laid out up front and then the real narrative starts afterwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as soon as that happened, I was so on the hook. And then, you know, like you said, they bring in like this whole De Palma thriller on top of that. A lot of body double DNA and body double. And also I thought the second half of the movie kind of played like a, Sort of like a Roman Polanski, like psychological, like it, w- it was more of a psychological thriller than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be pretty straightforward. Someone's stalking her, trying to kill her, but it's way more interesting. Yeah, there's that. some teasing of like supernatural elements in there. It plays almost like a fairy tale in some ways, too. She has to like outsmart this like entity that has stolen her identity uh, mm-hmm. through the computer. 
And it's like written by someone who used to cam girl for money. So what it was written by a female then. Yeah. Okay. And directed by a guy. Uh, and I think I heard on an episode of Switchblade Sisters that she made him uh, do a session like stripping online for money so he can get like a sense of the vibe. Mm, uh, man. And I think Madeline Brewer, who's the main actress who plays the main character, she self-directed some of the more like sexualized scenes as well just so they could make sure she felt comfortable with what she was doing. So it was like really this like really collaborative effort between the three of them. And I think that comes through in the movie. Like there's a lot of like informed conversation about like what sex work online is like without shaming people for it. It's not like a cautionary tale about why you shouldn't cam girl. It's more like this, you know, eeriness of what life online is like and how having your account hacked feels like a horror show. Yeah. And I actually came away with it sort of viewing camming as the girls having way more agency than I thought that they did, like that they kind of do control what they do. Whereas in other sex work, like prostitution or hardcore, like pornography, I feel like they kind of have less agency and can be like taken advantage of. And in this situation, I thought it was like kind of empowering. In a way, I think what's interesting about the story it tells is it's kind of her kind of crossing her own boundaries about what's acceptable and then kind of dealing with the repercussions of that. She has that Melanie Griffith type scene where she lays out, you know, from body double her don'ts and won'ts, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and she does the same thing in cam. And when those boundaries are broken by other people, like basically violating her, you know, don'ts and won'ts, that's like where the horror is coming from. Not the fact that she's camming. It's that someone is like taking away her consent and her control of her account and sort right, of and ruining that, what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's where like the psychological break comes through. So yeah, that was like a very nice surprise. And it's right there on Netflix. Yeah. Please check it out. It is so good. Have you seen anything good lately? That's it. I got I, so much more. <laughs> oh, you got more. I, yeah. have, I have another one, but yeah. g- give me. Okay. Another one on Netflix. Shirkers. That shot up my list like very highly. Oh, I saw that. I, I haven't checked it out yet, though. It's a documentary. Um, it's about these teenagers in Singapore in the early 90s who were like these punks, you know, writing zines and basically that like Gen X, like performative counterculture. Like I know where all the cool movies are and I know who the cool bands are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like tastemakers kind of. And they get it taken advantage of by this American college professor who goes to Singapore and helps them film a feature movie. And it was supposed to be the first independent film produced in Singapore that had that like sort of Gen X independent film culture vibe, you know, like I'm trying to think of directors from that era, like Quentin Tarantino and um, Steven Soderbergh. I was thinking maybe Jim Jarmusch. A yeah, little bit. exactly. That yeah. whole like nineties indie cinema boom. So they were supposed to be the first in Singapore to pull this off. And these three girls do all this work producing, directing, acting, and writing in this film and the guy ghosts them and just leaves with all the footage they shot and disappears. So they work really hard and they build up all this buzz and they're like local zine culture and the movie's just gone and they have nothing to show for it. Damn. And then 20 years later, he's dead and his wife sends the director of this film, Shirkers, the footage that was lost hmm. without sound. So she can't reconstruct the film the way it was supposed to be. Instead, she develops the footage and you see a lot of what the original film is supposed to look like. And it's this really beautiful, vibrant, rich color 
road trip movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's an island, you can drive across in 40 minutes. It's this like road trip movie in Singapore. And she explains what the movie was supposed to be like. And instead of trying to reconstruct it, she interviews all the people that worked on it with her. Basically, like, investigating what they were like as kids. And she realizes, like, wow, I'm an asshole. I was the Mm. one that rallied all these people around this, like, creep. And I should have known better. And I used all my friends, like, effort and energy for this project that went nowhere. And she, like, self-examines there and also investigates this guy that disappeared. Hmm. A lot of his story is filmed around the corner from where we're at right now. She goes to Mid-City, New Orleans... And talks to people he used to make movies with around here. Hmm. There's this film he made that's something like The Last Slumber Party. That's like some like shitty you know, Slumber Party Massacre type like mm-hmm. slasher. And reels of film went missing from that mysteriously. Like he took parts of that project away and they had to finish it uncompleted. And he sort of leaves these like sort of pockets of mythos around everyone he's with and like creates this sort of self mythology. And, you know, they sort of investigate this guy. Uh, he claims that he was the inspiration for James Spader in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is a really fucking weird thing to be proud of. <laughs> <laughs> that character is not, um, I don't know, not someone I would want to be right. compared with. Yeah, he's like a sort of inefficient creep. Is like, you know, he's like ineffectual creep. And yeah, the movie just has a lot going on. Uh, I was, you know, really taken aback by how much of it was local. Like, I'm watching it. And they're filming closer and closer to my house, like, every few scenes. Like, I was like, are about to pull out up front where I'm sitting right now? So that was, like, superficially satisfying. And then also just the all the beautiful preserved footage of this original film they never got to finish. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, the legend of the movie is almost better than the final product could be. Well, I was going to ask, like, I wonder if maybe it has more impact that it will never get to see the final film. And I, I kind of like the examining of coming at it from different angles. Like, yeah. That sounds like it maybe worked out for the best or it's people have different opinions on that. Like some people in the movie are like, this would have changed everything. And some people were like, well, you know, the acting wasn't as good as you think it was. Cause you were a kid when you made this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what she did turn that like raw footage into is really fascinating stuff. Just the way she turns it back in on herself too, where she like has this epiphany, like I'm a huge fucking jerk. And, her interacting with her friends that she was like teenage artist collaborators with, they still have that same dynamic where they're like kind of arguing and she's like bullying them. Uh, like if someone suggests like, Oh, you were really in a Bergman at the time. She like stops everything short. It's like, I was not in a Bergman. I always <laughs> hated him. Like she still has that sort of like tastemaker gen X zine culture kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. And the film's edited that way. It's edited like a weird collage shirkers on Netflix sure. as well. That sounds very cool. It's amazing. What else you got? Well, there's another random Netflix movie, but it's not from 2018. It's from like 1981 called The Winter of Our Dreams. Hmm. Yeah. And it's um, it's an Australian movie. Uh, do you know who Brian Brown is? Have you ever seen FX? No. Oh, dude, I might have to make you watch yeah, that. I haven't heard of that one. Oh, it's so good. Well, anyway, he's the main character in that. Uh, I thought you might have seen him, but it's got him and Judy Davis it's really interesting. I just started watching. I got really sucked into it. It's a very interesting character study where you have Brian Brown playing this kind of intellectual guy who owns a bookstore and he's in an open marriage with his wife. Like she has her lover and he can kind of see who he wants to. And he finds out that this old classmate of his that 
used to protest with him. He was like really politically active in the 60s, uh, committed suicide. And so he's basically just trying to figure out like what happened with her. And he finds out that she was close friends with the Judy Davis character, Lou, who's a heroin addicted prostitute. And he kind of, they start like a friendship, but there's kind of romantic undertones. And he basically takes her in to his home. And so it's this weird dynamic of she's kind of into him romantically. You don't really know how he feels because he's pretty cold. And then his wife, they're in this open thing. So it's like a really tangled sort of love story. And I just thought Judy Davis's performance was phenomenal and one of the best performances I've seen recently. I just loved it. It was just like a really interesting little character study, beautifully shot. Yeah. And if you're into this sort of tangled kind of like an adult drama. Yeah. Adult drama where the relationship dynamics aren't clear, very like subtle sort of movie, but I was really taken aback hmm. by it. And it's on Netflix. I had never heard of it. What's it called again? It's called winter of our dreams, <laughs> which that's a yeah. hard title to remember. To be yeah, honest. exactly. I was trying to tell someone else about it and I had to look it up because the title, it, could be anything yeah remains of the day the <laughs> whatever but no it's really good it's on netflix and it's where it's worth the watch i got another netflix movie with a title exactly like that what you got the other side of the wind the new orson welles film i i've been wanting to see that i've read a lot about that it looks very cool it's weird that it's on netflix it's weird that it's a 2018 film that uh you know feels like a 2018 movie like because peter bogdanovich gives this like opening narration where he includes the word like cell phones and stuff. So like there's some modern touches to it mm -hmm. and there's some footage that they couldn't finish the effects for because Orson Welles died before production wrapped. Uh, so there's like a couple digitally shot or at least it looks digitally shot scenes where a character is like shooting targets off of a cliff that look very new, but he, it's a movie he started making in the seventies. I don't know how much you know about it. I, I've read a, a good little bit. Basically, it's like a movie you can't say anything about that it doesn't already say about itself. It's about this guy played by John Huston, you know, another famous old Hollywood director mm -hmm. uh, who the character he plays left to Europe for like decades and is coming back to make his like American movie comeback, which is what Orson Welles was trying to do with Other Side of the Wind. Uh, his closest sidekick is Peter Bogdanovich is playing, which, you know was a real life thing for right. Orson Welles as well. And Peter Bogdanovich is always like seeking his approval and like basically calls him daddy a couple times. There's like this weird, you know, worship element there. He's making fun of European art house directors that he had to work beside in Europe. He's making fun of new Hollywood people who've like sort of taking up his mantle, you know, people who worshiped him for citizen Kane, but now are like, you know, the young brats that have taken over Hollywood and now he can't get a project started. Mm -hmm. uh, he's making fun of himself playing this like, you know, bitter old man. And the whole concept of the movie is there's a party where they're going to screen the other side of the wind and it keeps getting like delayed for technical difficulties. And mm. the movie is a fake documentary shot from everyone at the party who just wants to get footage of John Huston's character. So it's all these people with like 16 millimeter cameras and um, different types of like re recordings trying to get this like sycophantic, you know, intimate portrait of the man as he was at his like final party. Hmm. So the movie 
edited like crazy. Like there's like a, an impossible number of angles and different textures to the footage you're watching. Sometimes, sometimes it's in color. Sometimes it's black and white. Sometimes it's really crisp. Sometimes it's grainy. And you do get scenes of the movie he shot, the other side of the wind, the movie within the movie. And it feels like this like Russ Meyer sleaze. It's hmm. supposedly it's making fun of Antonioni, but I don't know his uh, style that well. What I picked up was more like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls type stuff. That like 60s psychedelia. The editing is super quick and it's hard to get like your footing because uh, there's so many cuts. And then just like so much footage of Orson Welles, like lover at the time, who apparently helped co-write and co-direct this. Or at least guide what he was doing with it. Getting naked. There's like a strap-on early in the movie. Uh, there's like these scenes where she's fucking somebody in front of her boyfriend in a car. And it's just like minutes long just sex and in the movie within the movie the lighting is so beautifully shot like it's just so hmm. intricately made so it doesn't feel like you're watching porn but the uh cinematographer for the film Gary Graver directed porn in real life to like subsidize his work because he was dedicating his life to Orson Welles you know legacy and um didn't have money because Orson Welles wasn't paying him he was just like dedicating all his time to him. Damn. So he, he shot porn in like B movies to like fund his career. So even that's part of the movie's DNA. I don't want to say I loved it. Like I know some people think it's like, you know, a revelation and like way ahead of its time. It's frankly kind of a mess, but it's like a really fascinating mess. And you know, just really weird that it's on Netflix in the first place. Have you ever seen F is for fake? No, I really do need to see that one. It, it sounds very similar. And I think later in his career, he was, got very meta and also kind of like a prankster mm -hmm. and F, F is for fake is all about like how film lies to you essentially. And he plays around with that idea in a lot of cool ways. This does feel like an extension of that a little, like just playing around with the idea of film yeah. as a medium. It was reminding me a lot of Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie that I saw for the first time oh, this yeah. year. You know, it's like a movie that kind of hates itself and like hates the industry. And just as that, you know, comparison popped to my mind, Dennis Hopper shows up on the screen and is like talking about his movie making process. Hmm. So like literally anything I could possibly say about it, it just like already is on the screen. There's like this like Pauline Kael stand in that gets like made fun of a lot because she was like panning his later films. And yeah, I, I think I'm missing some of the context for a lot of that there's probably even like jokes and satire in the film that i don't know because i'm not super familiar with his career and the other people he's making fun of but um if you're into that like that era of like new hollywood and like european art house stuff from the 70s there's like so much densely packed into here yeah i just like the idea of like a disgruntled older orson welles just doesn't give a shit and wants to like troll basically everyone everyone <laughs> yeah. and himself too like that's appealing to me. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I think you would like it a lot. I think you'd like it even more than I did, to be honest. And you have anything else? No, I mean, that's pretty pretty much it. And just the movies we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that was like a whole Netflix uh, <laughs> recommendation session. That's not a bad yeah, thing. There's yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on there right now. Which is weird, because I feel like Amazon Prime and Hulu and Canopy are like usually my go-tos. But there were a few Netflix things I really wanted to watch recently. Yeah. Well, today we're not going to be talking about highfalutin art films. We're mostly going to be talking about trash. Garbage. <laughs> Just like Lots the of garbage. bottom of the barrel. We'll start fixing that early next year. We'll do like, you know, our top movies of the year and all kinds of other stuff. Well, but it makes you appreciate the good movies. Yeah. You know, this is like a toilet flush, like clearing the bowl. 
<laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. There was no earthly reason why Max Klein survived the crash of Flight 202. You're alive. Why didn't you call me? I thought I was dead. But it left him with a heightened sense of reality. I think he thinks he's invulnerable. I've seen him with the Vietnam vets. You want to kill me, but you can't! And an extraordinary sense of life. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, it was James's turn to pick, so what did we watch? I picked Fearless. It's a Peter Weir film from 93, starring Jeff Bridges. It's got uh, Rosie Perez. It's got Isabella Rossellini. Rosie Perez was nominated for an Oscar for this film. And deservedly so, yeah, I would say. And I don't know, like... I, this is now my third time seeing it. I don't know why I picked it, honestly, with the other films we were doing, which were so awful, and just wanted something that kind of, I don't know, it's, every time I watch it, it like hits me on a different level. It's a very subtle, beautiful film um, that not many people have really seen, or it doesn't really have a lot of acclaim. Oh, it has a lot of acclaim, but it, no one really like name drops fearless. I will say that is the connector, I think, to the other movies we're going to be talking about later. Like today, kind of the theme of the episode is like box office bombs. And this one wasn't like that embarrassing, but it made $7 million on a $20 million budget. Uh, so it, it, it definitely fits the theme of the show. They're just movies that lost a lot of money. Which is really a shame. Because, yeah. I mean, I think it did get critical accolades, but people just weren't really interested in going to see it, which is kind of a, a real shame but anyway like i said it's directed by peter weir who also did picnic at hanging rock which i really need to see that yeah that that's a really good one and another favorite from him is a witness mm. the harrison ford going undercover with the amish i kind of remember that one as that, like a kid i really love that movie yeah, too I need to revisit it but anyway so fearless is based around this guy max who is an architect that Early on in the movie gets in a frightening plane crash where lots of people die. And he kind of has, I guess, an epiphany or I think through the crash, he kind of learns to let things go and to not be afraid of dying. And he kind of gets into the Zen sort of like Buddhist way of being. After the crash, he kind of goes on a little road trip and doesn't tell his family where he is. He just kind of he mentions numerous times like how he feels like a ghost and um, he starts a really close friendship with Carla, played by Rosie Perez, who lost her son in the same plane crash. And they sort of begin this journey of basically helping each other get through their grief in kind of different ways. I think that's a big thing. The film is about how survivors of these traumatic experiences experience pain and loss in like different ways and the ways they cope with it. Yeah. Like his closest relationships in the movie are with his wife and son. Uh, and he feels closer to this Rosie Perez character than he does to his wife, uh, Isabel Rossellini. And he feels closer to this kid that survived the crash with him than he does with his own son, which is so weird. This kid just starts hanging around him cause he kind of saved him during the crash. And now the kid kind of looks at him, as his father and he shows up to family gatherings and Thanksgiving 
and it obviously makes his wife and son feel very uncomfortable, but Jeff Bridges or Max didn't really have a problem with it. And same thing with Rosie Perez. Like there is a slight, I thought for a while there was going to be a romantic thing, but that's not really what it's about. They're like super confused. They just know they have this like intense attraction to each other. And there's a certain part where they're like, Oh, we're, we're in love, but there's something much weirder going on there. Yeah. I mean, at one point Max even tells his wife that he's never felt love the way he feels towards Rosie Perez. And obviously that makes her very angry and confused. But by, I think by the end you have a pretty clear understanding of their relationship and how they needed each other. So the reason this movie's kind of stuck with me, as you kind of know, I, I, I do like heavier sort of philosophical films sometimes. And this is very philosophical in a sense, but it's not, it's philosophical, but it doesn't feel over intellectualized. It's probably the most human philosophical film that I can think of. I think that's why it really appeals to me. And also I think the performances from Jeff Bridges and Rosie Perez, especially are just amazing. And I also think that the climax of the film is one of the most beautiful scenes oh, yeah. in any movie that yeah, I can I think, think of. Most movies would have started where the climax is, which is, I don't think there's much of a spoiler to say, but the climax is during the plane crash. The first thing you see is him stumbling away from the plane crash in a haze, like in the after effect. And they go, oh, what happened there? And then, you know, in the climax, you get to see what actually happened. Whereas I feel like most movies would have started with the crash and then like dealt with the after effect. It's beautifully done in that after you sat through the whole movie and you kind of have been sitting on those themes and really thinking about it. And at the end, when you get to see up close the like devastation and, but also like kind of beauty of the plane crash, like people comforting each other. And there's like a real humanity to it that just really moves me. Cause even during the crash, he has that Zen attitude. Like he already accepted that that was the moment of his death. And he just sort of like drifts through the scene almost like like an angel uh and other people see him that way too they're like oh this like guardian angel uh good samaritan character walked through and blessed us and that's why we survived watching it again i picked up on a lot more religious illusions like especially with his feet towards the beginning there's all these shots of like his feet or his wife massaging his feet and made me think of obviously like jesus Mm -hmm. but he is seen as like a saint and i think I don't know how you feel about his character. I think the first time I watched it, I was like, he's like a badass. He has it like figured out like, and watching it this time, I was like, no, he doesn't. His he, brain's broken. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know why I just saw like, Oh, he's a Zen Buddhist now. Like he's totally cool. Like that's how you should live your life. But it's the total opposite. It reminded me of people who have like impulse control problems because of like a brain injury. And that's a real thing where, like, they're like, oh, I'll just gamble away my life savings. Who gives a shit? Like, they don't have the fear that you need to, like, survive. Like, a little bit of fear is healthy. Right. Uh, and his fearlessness uh, sort of escalates in that way. Where, like, at first he's, like, not afraid to eat strawberries anymore because he used to be allergic to them. But now, who cares? He's already dead. He's not afraid to take another plane ride back home from where he drove off to, even though he just survived a plane crash. And then it escalates to like, I'm not afraid to divorce my wife and blow up my marriage. Like, who gives a shit? It's not healthy what he's going through. No, and I I think what kind of happens throughout the movie is as soon as he experiences something that's truly human and he has to like 
confront it. He can't do it. So he goes to these escalating fits of like putting himself in danger because that it's a way for him to like, I guess, feel alive yeah. in, in that moment. And he's like challenging God too. Like he like walks through traffic and then just shouts at the sky. You want to kill me, but you can't. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he like feels empowered by this like thing that happened to him. So I, so what did you think of the movie? Uh, I really liked it. I loved it. Actually. The first thought that comes to mind is like people complain now that there aren't like movies made for adults anymore. You know, like dramas that take their themes seriously instead of like these like genre action movie kind of payoffs. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, which I think that's a little overblown, but this does feel like a specific kind of like nineties, you know, smartly written movie that the dialogue feels like a stage play kind of. Mm -hmm. And then even the smaller characters played by like John Toltoro and, uh, Benicio del Toro feel like really thoughtfully constructed side characters instead of like these like evil villains. Yeah. And even if they are a little one dimensional, I think they are that way to, it's really about Jeff Bridges and Rosie Perez character and all the supporting characters kind of elevate them and their, which is exactly what supporting characters should do. So that worked for me a lot because you know, the dialogue's just really well written and I liked the structure of it where he has blocked out the memory of the plane crash because of his PTSD. And a lot of this movie is about PTSD therapy and the images of specific moments in the crash sort of flash back to him gradually until you get that climax where he's ready to accept like the full memory of mm-hmm. what happened. And so he can move on with his life. He's kind of stuck in the moment without dealing with it. And he helps Rosie Perez go through the same thing until she has the full memory before him. Uh, so, you know, all that's really smartly well done, really well written, but that's not why I love the movie. <laughs> like, I love it because it feels like a dream. Like, mm-hmm. he's in a stupor walking away from this plane crash, and it almost feels like it's setting up a twist where this is all in the afterlife or something. Because it's really optimistic about how many people would survive a commercial plane crash. There's a lot of survivors stumbling out of this cornfield at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that he is making all these like rash decisions and like putting himself in harm's way and just sort of wandering around in this like weird, comfortable haze while everyone else around him like wants to shake and be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Right. Uh, it felt like a weird nightmare that you just couldn't wake up from. Like he keeps getting closer and closer to the surface of waking up from this like nightmare and he just can't pull himself out of it. And I think the direction, especially in that plane crash climax really evokes that like eeriness of like a nightmare that you're kind of consciously awake for, but like can't snap out of. Uh, right. I think that feeling is sustained throughout in this like really powerful way. And I think it's a really powerful film in it's like atmosphere. Yeah. And to that point, one of my favorite scenes is when um, they go to the mall together and I think he even says like we're ghosts and there's a really good part where Rosie Perez goes to smell a baby and I was screaming. It's like, no, it's kind of <laughs> uncomfortable. Cause you're just like smelling some random person's child. Yeah. But the then, mother's shopping and not paying attention. She's like getting really close to that baby and smelling it. But then the baby doesn't seem to notice. And the woman doesn't notice. And then you're kind of like, you're saying like, damn, maybe these people are ghosts. And I think it's interesting too the way Jeff Bridges, I think his performance is so nuanced too, I, and I don't know if he gets enough credit as being a really phenomenal actor. I think post Big Lebowski, he's just like, you know, is who he he's is. He's the dude. He's the dude, but he's like, 
this just shows the range he has. And again, like you say, the way he copes with it is his dreamlike state. He can't wake up from them. Rosie Perez, she deals with it in like guilt and shame. And there's all this stuff with like her Catholicism is like forcing her to feel guilty and she hates herself and she just wants to die. So she's like internalizing everything. Whereas Max is sort of externalizing it and the way they're able to come together and help each other recover is like a really beautiful relationship dynamic. And again, where he talks about how he loves her. I think that's where it's coming from is like they can help each other. So yeah, it, all the layers of like subtlety and nuance and the performances and yeah, it's, it's a beautiful movie. And you could see them selling this concept, like kind of like a reverse final destination. Like the plane crash made him invincible. You could see that being like turned into something much less interesting and much less like thoughtful, like, a, like maybe like a Jim Carrey, like Bruce Almighty type movie or something. I mean, it, it it's very similar to like unbreakable. Yeah. You know, which actually is a really good movie. Yeah. That one's pretty somber. I don't think the dialogue's as good as it is here. Like this is like a stage play level. You could convert this movie into a play pretty easily. I think. Oh yeah. You wouldn't have the plane crash aspect, but you normally need to see that to get the point. Yeah, I could see the same high concept being turned into something cheap and like easy. Mm-hmm. And it's really not that it really deals with PTSD in this like kind of head on thoughtful way. And like you said, makes something that would feel badass, you know, the fact that he's like invincible now. It's like, no, he's like more vulnerable than he's ever been. He's just not dealing with it. It really digs deep into like hurtful things that he does to other people when he's in that state. Yeah. And I thought it was also kind of nuanced in how it, like there's a scene where all the survivors kind of meet together in this hotel conference room. And sometimes they're like blaming each other. Other times they're kind of dismissing each other. And then at one point, one of the survivors is like, is this helping? Like, why are we doing this? I don't know. I'm sure that's like what therapy feels like for a lot of people after that kind of event. It's like so painful and you don't know what you're even feeling and especially when you're with a group of people too it just can be murky and you don't know you don't have any like easy answers for someone that's going through that and it's john Turturro's job as the therapist to like make sure they're dealing with this stuff head on instead of avoiding it and like dwelling in it but see even he like doesn't have the answers like he even admits like he doesn't really know how to help but he's doing his best. But he wants to make sure people are trying to move on instead of like being stuck in it, I think is his job. Yeah. And I think that's why he takes interest in Max because he doesn't really fit inside the mainstream way that like people deal with grief. Mm -hmm. He's dealing with it in some like very unique sort of way and he can't quite wrap his head around like how to help him. And other people are treating him in like this like angelic figure. And John Turturro's like, no, that's like an actual living person who has their own shit they need to deal with, you know? You can't use him that way without there being consequences for him. So, I don't know. I thought that was really thoughtful, too. But yeah, really really well-written, beautiful, eerie, and really dark. Like, there's some dark humor in there, but a lot of it's just dark with no humor. Um, I mean, <laughs> like, again, with that mall scene where he's like, let's buy gifts for the dead, you know? And then he, like, buys a toolbox for his dad that passed away and she buys toys for her dead son. And that scene is kind of joyful in a way, but it's also has this it's really morbid, really morbid. Yeah. Like picking out 
toys for your dead child. But even those dark moments have like a humanity about them that I find really appealing. And Rosie Perez sniffing that baby is the most tense I've ever been during a scene. It's like, yeah. no, run away. Don't, don't do, don't do that. All, and also the, I guess this could be considered the climactic scene, but when she finally confesses like what happened to her son and yeah. he kind of has his own form of therapy and how to deal with that. <laughs> in a, Super dangerous. In a really destructive way, but it ends up being exactly what she needed. Yeah. Um, again, like no one has answers on how to deal with grief, but that's a pretty destructive way to deal with it. But I think it ultimately like saved her. But anyway, yeah, yeah he, he takes uh, dealing with grief head on in a very like literal way. Very, very, <laughs> very literal. Yeah. Anyway, fearless. Great movie. You should check it out. You should check it out. with this movie i have no idea the oogie loves movie has everything kids love balloons talking vacuum cleaners shrieking voices puppets with dead eyes plus every kid's favorite celebrities tony braxton and chaz palmentary <laughs> he's got chaz palmentary i'm sorry he's got chasmataz yeah yeah <laughs> In a ca- it sounds awful. How much did this thing cost? Seriously. $60 million. $60 million? Okay, how much did it make? An oogie alien dollars. Woo! All right, so try to hold on to those uh, good vibes from Fearless for a minute, because uh, we're going to be it's talking about... get a little bumpy. Yeah, five terrible films. To varying degrees of terribleness. Very we'll true. We'll get into that. This is an idea that you had a few months ago, because the... Kevin Spacey film Billionaire's Boys Club supposedly made a whopping $126 <laughs> on its opening day, uh, which, you know, was you know, a laughing stock across the Internet. I think that's like a kind of a skewed number in some ways. I don't think it had that wide of a release. It opened in a total of eight theaters. Oh, yeah. uh, it also opened on VOD on the same day. So, okay. you know, a little a little bit of a punching bag moment. You know, it's it's really fun to beat up on Kevin Spacey right now. I don't want to take that away from anybody. <laughs> um, but, you know, $126 across eight theaters is still really fucking bad. That's so bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so awful. <laughs> it's like barely one person a theater in most Can of those spots. Can you imagine being that one person what that decided to go? Yeah. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> so that sort of spiraled out in this larger topic of like, what are the worst opening weekends of all time for a film? Like what's the really embarrassing ones. And it's kind of hard to judge that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know we looked at like a few different lists. I think what we ultimately decided on was a pretty good industry standard. It's 2000 theaters or more. So I've seen the standard listed as 600 theaters, which is pretty small. And then I've also seen the standard list of this 1,500 theaters, but I that isn't aggregated on Box Office Mojo, so it would have taken a lot more digging than I honestly care to put time into. We went up to the next biggest one. So this is very wide openings, and this is 2,000 theaters. That does have a recency bias to it for a couple reasons. Uh, one, there didn't used to be 2,000 theaters for movies right. to open in. And then two, Box Office Mojo only has stats since 1983 also we're not looking for the movies that lost the most money of all time like major flops because you could have like a disney movie that costs you know a hundred million dollars and only makes 40 million 
that 40 million is still going to drown out a lot of these smaller movies we're watching. Yeah. And there's already been enough lists about biggest flops. Yeah. In that sense of all time. And I knew we were on something with the one we picked too, because out of the five movies we talked about four of them, Nathan Rabin wrote about on his my world of flops uh, articles, which are essential reading. Yeah. Which was one of the funnest things about doing this is going back and reading his reviews. Yeah. Cause they're hilarious. Uh, the only one he didn't write about was the, what, the first one we're going to talk about because it came out in February, 2017. It was after that article was already canceled from uh, the AV club, mm-hmm. which is a really fuck a fucking shame. The dude is a genius. I've got all of his books. His world of flops books is particularly very good. Uh, and it has most of the movies we're going to talk about on here yeah, today. Yeah, I, I, actually, that's the one I own, too, so I got to go back and read some of those. Yeah. Why did he, they drop him from AV Club? Well, he was with AV Club, and he left for the Dissolve. Right. And then the Dissolve let him go before the like months before the Dissolve closed. And then he was doing freelance pieces like My World of Flops for AV Club later. And AV Club basically fired all of its people and has reduced its output to, like, kind of clickbaity type stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's a really sad state out there for film criticism right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're trying to do this as a professional, you're barely scraping by, which is like, you know, very sad. Most of the dissolved people I used to follow are now podcasters that I sometimes see their reviews for, but mostly they edit reviews for, you know, freelance websites. Yeah. So yeah, sad state of affairs out sad. there. <laughs> but a lot of these did get covered in my world of flops before. It got canceled. I think he might have revived it on his new site. It's called Nathan Rabin's Happy Place. Oh, okay. And he I'll basically drives his own content on there. So I got you. Well, the first movie is nowhere to be found on the Flops articles. It's called Collide from 2017. I remember this coming out only because when it came out that weekend, we you know we were already doing Swamp Flicks. So I'm already like paying attention to what movies are coming out, and I mentioned people saying I saw people mention, "What is this? I've never even heard of this." It's a film that was supposed to come out in 2015, but Relativity Media, the production company that owned it, collapsed. Uh, And they had a few movies that got delayed by like two years because of that. Well, and it's never a good sign when the movie starts and there's like six different production companies. Yeah. That's never a good sign. Once Relativity Media fell apart, uh, they probably had to scrape together funding for distribution. And, you know, it took a couple years. February... Early in the year, it's kind of when stuff gets dumped. Yeah, not a good time. Um, (laughs) The biggest stars in the film are Nicholas Holt and Felicity Jones. Not particularly, like, huge actors. Uh, The two villains are played by Anthony Hopkins and... um, Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. And, you know, they're not going to carry every, like, low-level action pick uh, the way they might have 20 years ago, either. I think with them, I mean, they pretty much had carte blanche to chew all the scenery they could oh yeah they play really over the top villains and make the most of the small role especially ben kingsley i it, it was a little sad to see hopkins in this kind of by the numbers like b-movie villain role and he's pretty much phoning it in yeah but if there's any light in this movie it is ben kingsley in his i guess he's like a turkish gangster yeah he's like a really corny low-class gangster trying to you know, earn his way into this like high class gangster circle that Anthony Hopkins owns. And Anthony Hopkins is doing his whole Hannibal Lecter routine where he's like too good to be associated with this like scum. Yeah. And these like long, kind of long monologues. Yeah. He's just kind of phoning it in, but yeah. anyway, and Kingsley's doing a lot of his stuff from sexy beast too, where he's just like so crass 
and like always says the wrong most obnoxious thing he can in any scene so this is the fifth worst opening weekend of all time in a movie that opened in 2000 theaters it made 1.5 million on its opening weekend which if you spread that out is about 740 dollars per theater so that's like nine tickets a showing i think yeah yeah it's pretty bad it's pretty bad <laughs> and it also had a record-setting second weekend dropped uh, and second weekend it made two hundred thousand dollars Ooh, that is a steep steep drop and it feels a little like a movie that should have gone direct to video in the first place. Yeah. It's one of those like dime a dozen DTV action films. But I honestly didn't think it was that bad. Basically, Nicholas Holt and Felicity Jones, they're British actors, both of them. And they're playing these American expats in Europe, in Germany. She is sick and needs like an organ transplant. And he is like this, you know, ex-thief who's trying to do right. And he decides to get back in the business of stealing vehicles and goods from gangsters to pay for her organ operation very basic plot but the way they sort of try to give it like a sheen is by using this like european cheap techno uh vibe where there's like all this like very bargain bin like dance music playing in the background mm-hmm. while he races luxury cars down the autobahn, autobahn yeah. tries to outsmart um anthony hopkins yeah and it has this really like over the top sentimentality thing going on it reminded me of like fast and the furious mixed with a romance film i'm kind of with you it it's serviceable like it's just fine there's another movie we'll talk about later that i felt the same way where i'm like this is not aggressively bad but it's definitely not good either and i don't know for me like those kind of movies are the hardest to get through because it just feels just so bland it's like a you know dime a dozen like guy Ritchie knockoff like it feels like a you know very specific kind of like European action film, but not one with enough style to pull off that like you know basic plot that he ha- it has. The dialogue is like really bad, and the the car chase stuff is like fine. I did find the editing a little too like I couldn't follow what the hell was going on. I liked the editing. I thought it was my favorite part actually. Really? Yeah. I, did, I was like, where are we? I have no concept of the dynamics or of what's happening, the geography of this situation. I didn't care that much about that. I was I more liked the editing and, you know, the romance aspect of the script. And this is a very like romantically minded movie. Like I said, it's very sentimental about their relationship. Don't tell me you like that montage. I did. That fall. Oh yeah. my God, dude. They I cover like so three up. months and three minutes uh, to that oh, no. song from the American honey trailer that, I am the winner. Dude, I couldn't do it. I liked that it. That was so, oh no. It's it very so corny. It's so corny. I don't know. To have this like action movie with like this, you know, almost YA romance at the center of it. Like she's dying of like organ failure and he has to like give up his good boy status. So yeah, it's like if Nicholas Sparks made an action movie. Yeah, I, I it's at least it's at least a novelty to see those two tones like smashed up against each other. It, yeah, novelty maybe. I think it could have been way more effective, you know. Yeah. But I do appreciate they were trying to add a little heart to the the action drama. And the action itself is kind of too easy. I don't really know how to describe it other than that. Like, anytime he gets cornered by, you know, these, like, supposedly, like, expert German killers, he slips away without any explanation. He's like, oh, got to go. And he runs off. It's like, how did they not catch him that time? I love the scene. He pretends to be homeless. 
which it just takes his jacket off and lowers his hat. Door. Yeah, that's it. Like, yeah, that's my disguise. That shit would not work. No, <laughs> you would get caught instantly. So I think you kind of have to buy into it being like a corny romance story to get anything out of it. Cause the action I don't think is logical in any way either. And it ends up just being like, you know, just a cheap DTV movie. Like you've seen versions of this before, I think outside the romance stuff, which feels a little different here. Yeah. And I agree. It's, it probably would do fine if it just went straight to DVD. I really don't know why they chose to do a wide theatrical release for this. It doesn't feel like that at all. Yeah, and it, it made $5 million on a $20 million budget. So whatever gamble they were trying to pull off there did not pay off at all. No. And really, those like $20 million budgets, they don't even factor in the uh, marketing marketing for it. You usually have to double it. You can you can assume that the, the announced budget is doubled considering like the marketing that's supported in these things. So it lost a lot of money. <laughs> it probably could have been made for at least $10 million cheaper and gone straight to, you know, Amazon prime and, you know, been okay. I guess. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, definitely not the worst one on our list. Um, but pretty mediocre uh, as mediocre as a movie can get. Uh, number four in the list made 1.4 million, $731 average per theater. This is a 2015 movie came out in October and I was working in a movie theater when it came out. So I watched everything when this came out and I skipped this. Uh, <laughs> it's called rock the Casbah. Oh no. Uh, yeah, this, this is one. starring uh, Bill Murray, Bill ghost busting ass Murray. Yeah. This opened on the same weekend as the last witch hunter paranormal activity, ghost dimension, Steve jobs, which I watched all three of those. And the other movie that opened th- that weekend is, um, one that's also on our list. So that was just a bad box office weekend all around. Mm-hmm. Making money at the time was The Martian, Goosebumps, and Bridge of Spies, which, I mean, The Martian was kind of a pretty sizable hit, but none of those were, like, lighting up the box office. Like, it was just a bad time for new releases, I think, those couple of weeks. That's pretty bad if you had access to free movies and you still skipped it. I skipped this one, yeah. That it says a lot. Zero interest. <laughs> and I was seeing everything back then. And this one has a probably one of the bigger movie star casts out of anything we watched today. Maybe there's an animated one where the voice cast is bigger later, but well, and it's, it was directed by Barry Levinson. Who's a pretty popular well-known like wag the dog. Yeah. And he's done good political satires. Yeah. Which I think is what this wanted to be and just fail spectacularly. Uh, It stars Bill Murray, Kate Hudson, Zoe Deschanel, Danny McBride, and Bruce Willis. Not a bad cast. No. Yeah. Good cast. Bill Murray is like this huckster music manager who drags uh, Zoe Deschanel out to Afghanistan to basically work the like USO circuit and immediately loses all of his money and his star and is just sort of penniless on the streets of Afghanistan and has to hustle his way back to the top. It's based on loosely this documentary called Afghan Star, which is about this American Idol type reality show that started in Afghanistan after the Taliban music ban was lifted. Uh, and basically this woman sang on TV without a hijab on and caused like a, a pretty big controversy. Yeah. All of the, you know, bite is taken out of that. There's a scene where a woman sings a cat Stevens song in English on a reality show in this movie, but she does it with her hijab on and the movie's not about her at all, even though it's she, supposedly based on her. She really, she doesn't really come into play until the last, what, 
35, 40 minutes. I mean, it really is just Bill Murray kind of doing his Bill Murray thing. She might have like three lines in the whole film, really. Yeah. And he's playing this like white savior that's like solving the like problems that are keeping her to where she has to hide her talents in a cave singing these like Cat Stevens songs to herself. Yeah. And the fact that he like discovers her singing in a cave it just so there's so many moments in this movie that are completely tone deaf and it really does just use the Afghanistan war as a backdrop for again, Bill Murray to do his thing and he, he can't save this movie. Well, he's kind of the main problem. I think like that sort of snarky making fun of everything attitude that was like charming in ghostbusters 30 years ago, like doing it in a like war zone that we are like still in mm-hmm. feels yeah it's so off and in bad taste really if there's any you know political point to the movie i will say i don't think about the war in afghanistan still going on that often like it, it just slips my mind because it's been made so impersonal and distant uh so it's like oh yeah this 2015 movie about this war that we're still in from the early 2000s but then like you said having murray do his like distant cynical sort of thing is like not what I think this movie needed. I think it could have actually worked if it really doubled down on the, the dark stuff and the heaviness of war and had more like really fleshed out characters. And if they spent more time with the girl that actually does sing, I, I could see a path where it might've worked. And the fact that Levinson directed, I know wag the dog is like a very good satire. Like he has it in him. I'm, but man, it's just, it failed to bring those, ideas together it kind of pushes that way with danny mcbride and bruce willis's characters are these like american arms dealers who are making a tidy profit selling illegal arms in afghanistan to basically both sides and i guess there's some satire in there about these like you know profiteers profiteers yeah. yeah but i feel like even that criticism feels very like 2003 2004 like there's nothing really new added to the conversation by their inclusion. And they have the same sort of blase gross attitude that he does. And he's supposed to be cute. Mm-hmm. So, you know, reading the tone and what Levinson was trying to say, like maybe we're supposed to demonize Bill Murray for like clawing his way back up the ladder by manipulating people. But it does feel like he's positioned as the hero of the piece. And right. It doesn't really take that many shots at his character. If, if that's the point. No. And he's like just kind of bullshitting the whole movie you know, name dropping how he worked with Madonna or whatever famous rock stars. And none of those jokes land. And there's no specificity to it. Like he name drops Madonna, Demi Lovato, the bangles, like things just have nothing to do with each other. If he's like a washed up manager, then like from what time period? Right. But again, I, I think where they really screwed up is, the focus of the movie should have been on the Afghan star stuff. And she's such an afterthought that in this, like what should be a cathartic moment where she's performing without her hijab, you just don't give a shit. Yeah. And it's just like running through the motions. And then it also, I mean, I hate to say it too. It's like her performance, like I'm sure she's a fine actress. She's not a great singer in this. So to imagine like, the way it's portrayed in the movie, it's this beautiful, rousing performance and it brings the country together and you're just like, you're not, she's not that great of a singer. So that kind of took me out of it too. I don't know. 
there there's a lot wrong with this movie one of the things being that it uses unironically ba with the ba as they're entering the war zone and it actually it stops for a moment i'm like okay whew, that's over and then it comes right back it and plays the full song it feels like it's like minutes of kid rock <laughs> uninterrupted i will say that this movie had some of the worst choice of music to accompany yeah, the story it's tell- like that is so tone deaf to have they're entering a war zone and there's bombs dropping you're gonna blast like kid rock yeah it just feels so dated the irony feels dated the criticism of the war feel dated not that there aren't things to pick at with the way we've handled right. afghanistan like there's plenty to chew in there but all the things he's saying with the film were said when the war started and now the war has gone on 15 years. Like, what is new to say about it? And the movie has no interest in digging into that. No, and there could have been something interesting with his character. He's kind of washed up ex-manager that's kind of hanging around the scene, trying to relive his glory days. And you could have maybe made something, a connection with how America is just like stayed in Afghanistan and no one really knows why and have kind of forgotten why, like, Again, I, I think there's something there, but man, it just executed very poorly. Yeah, easily the hardest one to pay attention to for me out of any movie we watched today. I was just very bored by it. I don't know. See, I was like, I thought it was definitely the worst of what we watched, but it was so aggressively bad that it kind of held my attention in a way that Collide and another one we'll get to later. I think it's the next one, and I think I liked it more than you did. Yeah, it just those were just so by the numbers that it it's hard for me to uh, pay attention to those. But th- I guess that does bring us to the yeah. next one. So the third worst opening weekend of all time for theaters in that range opened the same weekend as Rock the Casbah, and it made one point three million dollars for a total of five hundred and seventy per theater. Like I said, I was working in movie theaters at the time. And this one didn't even come to the two I had access to through our company. Uh, It's called Gem and the Holograms, based on the 80s cartoon that's, like, totally outrageous. Yeah, which is awesome and sci-fi and action and girl power. I really do like the original cartoon. I watched a couple episodes of it. Uh, It's got a very, like, specific feminine new wave look to it. Mm -hmm. A lot of, like, big shoulder pad pink blazers and, like... You know, bright colored lipsticks and these like ridiculously huge earrings and things. It's got a really cool look to it. And it's about these two warring girl bands, the the holograms and the misfits. And it's also about this lady who runs a record company and is kind of shy, like stage shy. But she hits these holograms that are activated by her earrings and they give her the image of this other character, Jem, that is confident and a rock star and has no problem like running the show. Which is a lot of what the plots of those early cartoon episodes are about is like her trying to navigate her two identities. So I was actually kind of excited to watch this one because I was like, Oh man, this might actually be like a hidden gem. And it kind of doesn't have a bad pedigree either. Like it's directed by John Chu who did that um, crazy rich Asians. Yeah. Which made a ton of money. So maybe he's like earned his way back into the fold. I think he also did like step up. Yeah. Which I've never seen those dance movie. I haven't seen him either. Uh, it's also produced by Blumhouse, and Blumhouse like never loses money. <laughs> so like this is like really weird for them to like ha- operate at a loss on a movie this big. Didn't um, Hasbro have a deal to 
I remember there was like a G.I. Joe movie that came out. There was this one. Yeah. And I think John Chu may have directed one of those G.I. Joe movies as well. And it was very obvious by the end of this one that they were trying to set up a sequel for like a franchise. And like they were going to get into Gem and the Holograms facing off against the Misfits and like more of like what the show was about. Which would have been a much cooler way to go with it. I didn't dislike this film. I'm getting a sense that you like very much didn't care for it, but I liked it a little bit. My problem is like, it's, it's fine. It's sort of like a girl empowerment movie for the YouTube generation. And I, I didn't have any problem really with the performances. I thought it was fine. I think my main problem was it took everything that was cool about the cartoon and just put it to the side and just made a very, just kind of safe girl empowerment movie. Well, it feels like it's for little kids. Little, yeah. Which I was surprised when I went, I went to the library to borrow this one. Yeah, it was in the kids section. Yeah. That's where I got it. It took too. me a minute to find it. It's like, oh, wait, the kids' movies are alphabetized separately. It's like, oh, there it is. So I, maybe that gave me more of a mindset. I'm like, oh, well, you know, if you consider like Disney Channel originals and stuff that's made for kids in that age range, like this isn't that different than that. But it's just bizarre because, okay, if you're going to like, buy the rights to Jim, the holograms, there's a built in like nostalgia factor. Right. But instead of playing into that, they decided to like neuter all of that and just use the name as a vehicle for a feel good, like movie for kids that doesn't have any of what made the cartoon cool. Yeah. Why well, pay for the rights and do this deal with Hasbro? If you just wanted to make a movie about a girl band, like you can just make a make movie. It. Yeah. You don't have to deal with the, the rights issues at all. I mean, you could have, Really, with like a few minor, very minor changes, you could have done that. I mean, just drop the, you know, the whole subplot with her dad leaving her the hologram. Uh, I would miss that, though. Yeah. Well, let's get into what the yeah, plot yeah, yeah, is yeah. for this one. Uh, Molly Ringwald is this sort of adoptive mother. Uh, she's adopted her two nieces, um, whose father is like a scientist who has passed away. And she also adopted, before that happened, um, these two other girls. So... It's like four adopted sisters are living in this house together and their mother makes them harmonize and like practice music as like sort of like a behavioral tool. Like it's, that's how they get along when they're having a conflict. She's like, everybody hit a high C and like hold it until you stop yelling at each other. <laughs> and then we're going to move on. The most talented songwriter of them is this girl who can't build up the confidence to get herself out there. She's this like singer songwriter, like acoustic ballads songs. And then immediately Starts doing these like high gloss pop music things when she actually does make it big. Um, she is supposedly Jerrica, who is the name of the main character from the cartoon. Uh, mm-hmm. Except this time she's like a teenager, and instead of being like a record company executive, she is just shy. <laughs> and she uses this gem character that she creates just with makeup and a wig instead of with the hologram. She uses that to like gain confidence and like anonymity. Yeah, and they kind of split her character from the cartoon into like two different characters. So you have um, Juliet Lewis, Juliet Lewis playing the record exec. Very much like a drag queen over the top villain role here. Yeah. She's just like hell on wheels. Like I I did like her performance a lot. And the big like main chunk of the movie is sort of the standard uh, coming up in the music biz story and the pitfalls of that. And I will say that is its weakest point for me is like, there are so many movies that do this exact plot, but just like way better, especially Josie and the Pussycats from the early 2000s. I know that's kind of what I was hoping 
this could have been. That's a fantastic satire and just like a beautiful, especially like the TRL era that we grew mm-hmm. up in. Like it's so on point and so funny. And even in that one, um, Parker Posey plays that same Juliet Lewis character, but like even better. So like mm-hmm. even the comparison there makes it lesser. In the seventies, there's this punk version called um, "Ladies and Gentlemen: The Fabulous Stains." That's fantastic. Oh, and then even more recently, the Runaways like biopic. It's a by the numbers biopic, but it's done even better than this one's done. Mm-hmm. So that whole like rise to fame and like selling out and dealing with like evil record execs and like having a falling out. It's just so generic compared to like other versions that have been done better in the past. The other half of the movie, like where the hologram comes in, is their scientist father has left them this like bb8 type robot mm-hmm. that like rolls around and projects these like almost like a treasure map like a uh yeah it gives her like clues to where to go to find the pieces to complete it mm-hmm. uh and it's all basically like memories her dad has or like stuff he wanted to take her to so it's tied into their relationship and then there is for me the best part of the movie there is a catharsis at the end where she sees his like hologram yeah. version programmed which actually was like pretty emotionally affecting i thought that was like the highlight or the high point of the movie i really like the impulse with that thing like with the robot leading on this like almost national treasure like nicholas cage like putting the pieces of your past together uh so you can find this like promised uh like life lesson from your father at the end of the rainbow and it felt a lot to me like last year's power rangers movie the one mm-hmm. i made you watch where you have this like really slow emotional build with like all this emotional bonding between the band members. And it feels like they're building a team to become these like superheroes that, you know, from like the original cartoon. Cause you know, they're a girl band, but they're also like these, like they're thwarting these like evil villains in the, the rival band, the misfits. Mm-hmm. So there's like almost a superhero element to it. And it just never happens in this film. Like it feels like it's building to this like superhero back and forth. that just doesn't arrive. Like that's kind of what I wish it would have, kind of leaned into was a little more of the sci-fi stuff from the cartoon. There could have been, you know, cool scenes of like the hologram thing or, but uh, while still keeping that father daughter relationship intact. Cause that is the kind of heart of the film. But I don't know. I, I think it would have been so much better if they stayed out of the genre stuff and made it just a little more weird and a little more, action superhero oriented with a little bit of that sci-fi just trying to keep a little bit of what made the cartoon so appealing while also like updating it for a modern audience like it could have worked really well and that's something that they pull off weirdly well in the power rangers movie where most of the film is them like you know, earning their way to becoming Power Rangers. And they don't really suit up to like the last 20 minutes, but it feels so good when they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, it actually like, means something. And I feel like if this movie had sort of like jumped into like a superhero narrative in the last minute, it, w- it would have worked perfectly fine the way it does. But instead you just get this like series of concerts. And in that respect, the movie has lack of specificity, sort of like we were saying about Rock the Casbah's like version of pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, here, Jem does this like sort of confessional to the camera, acoustic singer songwriter stuff that's actually honestly like, pretty beautiful and then also this like high bubblegum pop music even though they're all wearing guitars and like instruments and stuff they're playing this like radio top 40 pop music that doesn't sound like a band at all 
it's like they want to use the iconography of like rock music, but they don't want to actually have you hear rock music. So it's not very popular right now. Well, and that's what kind of bugged me too, is a big plot point is that the Juliet Lewis character wants Jim only like she's the star and, and she's like, no, no, I, I have to have my band and my sister's with me. But then it's like, do, do you, you need them? They're <laughs> not playing anything. Yeah. They're not. The music is like very pro- produced stuff you would hear for like Katy Perry or like, that's why I don't get like, you don't need your bass player and your guitar player and a drummer. Like you're singing over pop tracks. But even then, like a Katy Perry song, I could sing you the hook from. I can't sing any of the songs from this gem movie that I just watched last week. The actual lyrics and the tunes are just gone from my head. The only song I remembered from it was this Haley Steinfeld song, I Love Myself, mm-hmm. uh, which is I saw in Blockers earlier this year, so I was already familiar with it. There's just like really nothing to chew on with the music in the movie. It's like when the concert scenes are happening, instead of this being like a triumphant moment, it's just like, I kind of wish this would end so we can get back to that treasure hunt we were on. Yeah. <laughs> like the sci-fi and the music are very separate and there's just really no interaction there. So it just feels like wasted time in between getting to the, like the heart of the story. I do respect its message though. I think it is admirable that they're basically trying to help kids in the YouTube generation with like struggling with identity. She even says in the beginning, like when you're living your life online, there's so many identities available to you and you just have to decide which is the real you. Like there is a good message, but it doesn't feel like the movie really earns that at all like i never get the sense that any of her other bandmates because they're not really fleshed out not at all in any way like what are their struggles with their identity it really is focused so much on jim even her little sister like the father leaves all these clues for jim and stuff and what about yeah do you not give a shit about me like yeah i was thinking that (laughs) where's my robot i'd be pissed yeah (laughs) why didn't they have a scene kind of with the two sisters talking about that yeah like they really didn't go in depth with any of these characters and therefore that message about identity feels like tacked on. So this is where I'm done complaining (laughs) because there's a lot to complain about. I really like what John Chu does with the YouTube element of the film. It's not just paid lip service to, and it's not just how she's discovered, you know, doing this like confessional. It's a constant aspect. There's a lot of like real YouTube footage of like kids performing for the camera and also a lot of staged footage sort of mixed in. Not necessarily like, well, you can tell when the stage stuff's happening, but um, YouTube culture is like just as much a subject of the film as anything else. Well, and I, I think it's sort of the anti-unfriended. It's not technophobic. I think it's actually embracing. It's a lot more like searching in that way. Yeah, but it, it's like has a more optimistic view of online life than a lot of the other movie. And I kind of appreciated that, that it's not all doom and gloom. Like these kids are creating meaning and enriching their lives through the internet. And the way that certain people talk about how Jim has given them confidence and shown them like what they can uh, do and how they can be themselves feels very similar to how people do confessionals about like, Britney Spears or somebody like that Demi Lovato or uh, Mm -hmm. Katy Perry was mentioned earlier. And he also mixes in YouTube 
with the other sequences as well, where there's like stomp type rhythms where people are like banging on desks and stuff, and that's used in the score of the film. Mm-hmm. So if there's like a heist at the um, record exec tower, there's like a uh, acapella beat being rolled in the background that like fits in with the climax as well. So it's not like separate. The YouTube stuff is like very integrated in. I think that's where John Chu like shows like, oh, I'm, I've actually got like talent as a director. I'm just doing this like Disney movie. Um, for Blumhouse. So yeah, I really liked a lot of that internet age stuff. And if you think about how celebrities are now, like most kids don't give a shit about movie stars. They don't care about rock music, but they know the fuck out of like YouTube and Twitch celebrities and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The movie's also pretty prescient in how RuPaul's Drag Race has like changed the look of people. Back then, like even, what was this, three years ago, that like high gloss 80s bright colors makeup she's putting on that like new wave look mm-hmm. the over the top wigs that might have been like ooh you're so weird for dressing like that but now there's so many makeup tutorials and mm-hmm. not that drag race wasn't already already popular 3 years ago but now it's like explosive how much of this content is out there uh so the, that look that she's selling to kids has sort of like won the culture war in the last three years. It feels a lot less weird now than it might have at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think back going back to the original cartoon, I think it had this, like there's more of a punk attitude, you know, and I don't think new wave was really like mainstream at that point. And it is kind of interesting that it's come around to the popular culture. And there are people that mix those two things pretty well. Uh, Carly Rae Jepsen has some really good, like synthy pop anthems that actually sound like a band could be playing like a synth while you hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know, maybe they should have reworked the music. So it actually sounded like instruments, but we see that a lot in rock movies now. Like you ever see that movie dope? Um, mm-hmm. There's like a garage band in that film. And then when the songs start, they're all done by Pharrell. So it's like, that's not a band. Like that's like some, that's like a producer's record, which not knocking that for authenticity or anything, but right. the, there's a disconnect between what you're seeing and what you're hearing. That kind of like that, that can be very jarring. Yeah, but anyway, I, I didn't. I didn't hate this movie. I thought the YouTube stuff was very interesting, and you know, for kids, I I don't think I think it's pretty harmless. It's just like Josie and the Pussycats is such a better version of the same film. Yeah, and I think that's why I kind of disliked it more than some of the ones that were actually worse because it could have been really good. Yeah, those are always the most disappointing ones where it's like a few minor tweaks and it could have really been a solid movie and the fact that it, it didn't, and you can see what's, what's missing. Just is very frustrating as a viewer, but it's also yeah. good um, lesson for like not saving the good stuff to the sequels. Cause if you don't get a sequel, then you just have a movie. That's like a waste of time. Yeah, pretty much. But no, I, I didn't mind it. It was okay. I don't think it deserved to be as big of a bomb as it was. Well, now we're going to dial the clock a little further backwards. Uh, so these movies really flopped hard because they came before the the last three we talked about were like in the last few years. Uh, this one came out 10 years ago in 2008 uh, in December. So pretty crowded market that it's entering in that like Oscar, you know, right. holiday season. It made $500,000 total, uh, which is $237 per theater. Its total gross was $694,000 on a $40 million budget. Ooh, those are staggering numbers. Yeah. Uh, the movie's called Delgo. Delgo. You know, I, 
have tried to remember that name and I just cannot for the life of me. It's like a whisper in the wind. Yep. <laughs> Delco. <laughs> this is one of the mo- most embarrassing attempts at like majesty I've ever seen on the screen before. It's going for this like Fern Gully avatar, avatar kind of look and it just fails miserably. It, it really looked like you ever watch Xavier Renegade Angel. It has a like really cheap cgi like screensaver level yeah or like almost like a old like video game i will say to it. that look and like the tools they're using to make this have been reused for two very different things i think in recent years this is what most kids tv looks like now this like com- computer yeah. animated like just not quite smoothly done it's got this like jerky and something about their the mouths and their eyes are like dead like there's no expression in their face at all. It also looks like porn. I don't know if you've ever been advertised while you're looking at regular normal people porn. They advertise you these like really hideous like animations of like yeah. two dragons fucking on like a, you know, that is volcano world. Oh it looks God. exactly like Delgo. Like it's got that same level of CGI. This took seven years to animate though. Well, it was independently done. Story. Yeah. I think the director wanted to do something outside of the, studio system so yeah it was kind of a labor of love which makes me i do respect that but man to labor over something for this many years and have this be the final product and have it bomb so so hard it's got to be tough and he tried to do this like thing where he made it really inclusive to the audience like they released these quote-unquote digital dailies so that you could go to this website online and see what they're working on every day like oh, we worked on this character design today and here's what it looked like at the beginning of the day and this is the work we did. So if you were like really interested in independent animation, especially computer stuff, you could sort of like check in every day and see how Delgo was coming together. So you would think they would have this like crowd support, like fan base for these like seven years of them putting this together. And they also have this like massive voice cast. I think they blew a lot of their budget on the cast, which it's such a like who's who of b and c list celebrities you got freddie prince jr chris Catan, jennifer love hewitt val kilmer malcolm mcdowell michael clark duncan eric idol burt reynolds kelly ripa wait who did burt reynolds play i didn't even... i don't know couldn't That's tell so you so bad yeah <laughs> why would you spend the money to get burt reynolds and then it's, do anything with it's dedicated to the memory of Anne Bancroft, who died during production. They had to like replace her halfway into it. Her voice work is actually the best in the whole movie. She plays far. the villain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was pretty good. The movie's about these two races on this like alien planet. One is this like winged dragonfly type creature. And there's like a lizard, and they pick on the the land dwelling lizards because they can fly. So like they're the superior race. <laughs> So you have white people voicing on opposite ends of this like racial war on uh, this like distant alien planet. So, you know, weird commentary there. Well, and also it's like the wing creatures are the more diplomatic, like I guess well-spoken. And then the lizard people um, are into like magic and all their powers are from being able to move stones with their mind. Yeah. So there is a weird racial and I think that's definitely intentional because the movie is a pretty blatant statement on on war. And uh, it actually deals with some pretty heavy themes, which I guess I kind of respect that. Yeah, it's trying to make this like more adult minded version of like a kid's movie. There's like all these 
themes of genocide and stuff, and it plays a lot like a drama that happens to have some comedic elements. And it was specifically supposed to be like a response to Shrek type stuff that was just like, you know, fluff, like mm-hmm. characters down- dancing to Smash Mouth, like in the bog while uh, Eddie Murphy as the donkey makes like cultural references that kids don't even care about. Yeah, I mean, one of that's actually the thing I think I liked about it the most was it does have a pretty nuanced and I think accurate view of how war happens. There's all these scenes of like diplomacy, like they attacked our people. Should we go on the offensive or, and then, you know, more like both sides commit acts of atrocity and sort of navigating wartime diplomacy. Like that stuff is accurate. And I think, well done but you're introduced to the scenario in this like huge information dump on front where they're like describing the differences between the lechni and the norish you know just terminology you really can't give a shit about because you know it, it's new and it's just being like flooding your well, mind and the main character's name to like yeah the characters have names like delgo you know setasus borgadus sprig curran like it's just nonsense it's like a I don't know, like a World of Warcraft yeah. um, kind of thing. And they try to do this like Montagues and Capulets thing where like two lovers from both sides of the line like fall in love. And, you know, the big payoff at the end is they have this big romantic kiss while fireworks go off. You know, spoiler uh, for Delgo. But uh, at that moment, like at the very last moment before the credits, I'm like, who fucking cares? I do not <laughs> care if this lizard and this dragonfly kiss. Well, and also like the anatomy of that situation, like... Can the lizard and the dragonfly, do they have compatible genitals? I, that's what I, I was thinking that. <laughs> You've been watching too many of those ads for uh, right? for weird porn. Yeah, the whole experience of watching it was just really bizarre. I found it really embarrassing, honestly. Like, <laughs> yeah, Especially since you have all this like very sentimental music that's playing and trying to like reinforce that what you're watching is very important. Like this like really serious orchestral stuff. Not to say that there's no comic relief, because you have Chris Kattan and Eric Idle specifically doing oh, a lot I of comedy. Can, I could not stand Chris Kattan oh, it was horrible. in this movie. Yeah. Every time he was on screen, I like I cringed so hard. Yeah. Oh my god, he was awful. <laughs> he really, like shrill, really. Really bad. Like and his character is so stupid and annoying and messes everything up. What seriously, I think he might be the most unlikable sidekick. I've ever seen in a movie. But what's almost even worse is like you have scenes where Michael Clark Duncan is playing this like mystic who's teaching Delgo how to float stones with his minds. And you're supposed to take that dead seriously. And I or, just don't have it in me. Or when the, the, the council of elders or whatever, oh my the God. way they vote is by focusing on one stone or the other. And that's how they vote yes or no. And it's like, I, yeah, like you said, I don't give a shit. dude. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it it doesn't make you care at all. Raven uh, and his piece on it had a pretty convincing argument for how it's like a noble flop. Like, it's an well, embarrassing yeah. failure, but like, at least they were trying to do something. Yeah, I respect that they were trying to make an important movie that was different from the other kids' movies that were coming out at the time. I can respect it. I, I honestly... And probably the wrong person to talk about it too. Like I don't like most computer animation movies at all, even the ones that are supposedly done well. I'm kind of a Pixar heretic. I think it looks ugly and cheap, even when it's done well. So to try to like go even lower to like this level was really hard for me. Like I just 
It just looked horrible. Uh, it's like false majesty. It was like so cringy in this like secondhand embarrassment kind of way. So yeah, noble or not, it was just like hard for me to care about anything I was watching the whole time. I I, I disliked this one almost as much as Rock the Casbah, to be honest. Oh wow! See, I I was more positive to this. I don't know. I actually thought the central like romance was done kind of well. Like they had a good good little connection. It's very it's kinda... Simba and uh, Nolly from. Lion oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. I don't know the action. I actually the part I zoned out the most was like the action scenes. It's like there's so much going on, but also nothing going on at the same time. It's weird. It was not thrilling in, <laughs> in any way. Yeah. And and also just the characters with their dead eyes and their mouths that barely move. Very creepy. And like we said, Chris Kattan is just insufferable. Oh, yeah. And but I hate him. All those side characters from like Disney movies annoy me, though. Like the dragon from Milan, the fucking donkey from Shrek. Uh, actually, those are both Eddie Murphy characters. But, um, you know, just that sort of like goof em up idiot sidekick who's just there to like shit his pants and like everyone laughs at them. Like, I don't find that oh, amusing. Oh, but this one was especially... It's bad. bad, yeah. The way he's just flailing around... <laughs> And just very, very hyper and clumsy and awkward. I just, I couldn't stand him anytime he was on screen. Yeah, sucks all the joy out of the room. And there's n- really no joy to begin with, with, the, <laughs> with this movie. Yeah, it's a joy vacuum. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, this one completely deserved to flop. No, no one should take their kids to go see this movie. So back when we used to watch a lot of these like so bad it's good kind of movies, that's kind of what we were looking for though. It was like an ironic enjoyment and like disastrous flops. I think the number one movie on the list, like the worst opening weekend flop of all time, has the most potential for that kind of like oh yeah, I can't believe how bad this is enjoyment. It's called Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. Uh, it came out in August 2012. It made $400,000 on its opening weekend for a whopping average of $206 per theater. That's not like per screening. That's per theater. Mm. Uh, just really embarrassing stuff. And what's so bizarre about that is it's an interactive film. Uh, this is Which is a great idea, by the way, I think. Interesting. I You don't think that that's a great... Like, that idea, if it was done well, could be awesome. Like, especially for a kid's movie. Like, all right, kids, like, this is a part where you get up and dance and here's the the moves and kind of making a kid's movie a more interactive experience and keeping them kind of occupied i know it'd be a disaster in the theater you'd have kids running around yeah everywhere but that was the main element in this movie that i was like that's actually kind of genius and i think could work well it could work if the kids already know the call and response like if they're prepped for it before they get there (laughs) right uh the producer of this worked on the American repackaging of Teletubbies and he wanted to make a Teletubbies movie with that interactive element because he went to go see Medea goes to jail and, uh, I read that in the Rabin piece. Yeah. yeah, And he was like inspired by people yelling advice at the screen. screen, Yeah. Which, what the fuck? (laughs) I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. (laughs) But he was like, okay, kids like to yell and like to jump around. Let's give them an opportunity where that's encouraged. So I can kind of see how that would be a good idea with the Teletubbies franchise that he wanted to do. If you're already invested in the characters. And there's already like parts of Teletubbies where you yell something at the screen and the characters interact. Like that's part of kids' television. But what kind of makes this movie so annoying is 
because you don't have that built-in fan base, you have to repeat the same catchphrases, the same instructions, like five, six times. Yeah, there's a character named um, Toofy who keeps dropping his pants because he's so punk that he refuses to wear a belt. And you have to yell, Goofy Toofy, pick up your pants every time he drops them, <laughs> which happens probably like four times in this every like, 90 time minute they, movie. Well, and the main, the main plot is they have to get these magical balloons. For a surprise party. For a surprise party. But yeah, every time they get a balloon, his pants fall down. Yeah. It's like, all right, we got to knucklehead this again. <laughs> But what what I think is like so hilarious about the failure of that and something Raven talks about when he wrote about it, because he went to go see it in the theater, is the disconnect between these characters telling you to do stuff and you're sitting in this empty theater just not doing it. And like watching it alone in my living room the other day, I'm getting like instructions on like when to jump and sing and dance. And I just don't. Did you, you react. Didn't get up at all? No, I did. I did at one point in the beginning. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to play along. Because, I again, I was drawn to that idea, the interactive. Because I, mean, I was like, I'm going to get up and move around. But then it kept happening. I was like, oh, hell no. That would be <laughs> a fun party, I think. If you can get, like, seven people or so to, like, interact with the film the way it wants you to. I Yeah, I was thinking, like... Over beers, I guess. Yeah, I was thinking, like, back, you know, back in college when we would do movie night and stuff. Like, it would have been fun to get, like, five or six people together and get trashed and and watch this and play along. Yeah. We did that every Friday. We'd play Foursquare, and then we would go to major video and get like the worst looking movies from the cult section we could find. Yeah. And watch them till we fell asleep pretty much. But yeah, there, there's something really fascinating about like being told to do stuff and just not reacting to it. At the end, they're like, blow as many kisses as you can. <laughs> I'm just like watching these creatures blow ki- and they, they want me to do it too like i don't know i don't want to so these creatures did have an origin story in this tv show called my bed bugs which aired for like two months in like 2004 so like a whole eight years before this movie came out so even kids who might have known what my bed bugs were might have had like a my bed bugs vhs would have been so old by the time this came out they would have like not cared right to see it so these are like basically, for practical purposes, completely new characters. Uh, their names are Gooby. Gooby. Not to be confused with <laughs> Gooby, the kids movie that we've watched for ironic purposes as well. Uh, Toofy and Zuzi. Gooby is kind of a nerd. Toofy is fucking punk and does everything for pleasure and has no time for rules and regulations. Like wearing a belt so his pants don't fall down. And then Zuzi is the girl. And that's pretty much her thing. Yeah, that was like really <laughs> annoying. Yeah. Like they give, you know, very basic character traits to the guys. But then, I mean, what is... Supposedly she can speak every language, but mostly that just amounts to her talking to animals and like translating for us. But it doesn't feel like a personality trait. Like she's not nerdy or punk. She's just the girl and she knows how to talk that's to animals. That's her whole identity yeah. is just being a female. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was very annoying. So these characters come out, they look like um, H.R. Puffin stuff or something, or like Frank. You remember Frank? Mm-hmm. Like the giant mascot head and this like tiny, like normal person body. They come out and they're playing in a rock band and they describe each of their personalities and introduce themselves. Very polite. And they tell you when you're allowed to jump up and scream at the adult that you're with says it's okay. And they also sing a song where they tell you this is going to be the most amazing movie ever. Let's go. And then, yeah, we go on this tour 
to retrieve these five magical balloons for a very sleepy pillows birthday party dude that pillow was stoned as hell dude (laughs) (laughs) it reminded me of uh tally yeah yeah exactly oh my god he's just like i guess it makes sense i mean if you're a pillow you probably are just sleeping 23 hours a day but man schloofy would just look he had glazed over eyes and he just can't get up out of bed. And he's part of this like clubhouse where the Oogie loves live, where everything is kind of anthropomorphic, but it's a vacuum cleaner named Jay Edgar, I guess. Cause Hoover vacuum. Yeah. Okay. Funny. Um, and then windy window is, uh, this like Southern accented window. Well, kind of like the Delgo thing with the romance between the two. There's like hints in the beginning that windy window and Jay Edgar or like kind of flirting and he's blushing. And I'm just imagining how would that work? Just throw the vacuum through the window, I guess. I, I, yeah. I Rhythmically know. tease it outside the window. I don't, I don't know. know. I guess your, your mind just goes to weird places when you're watching some of this stuff. Yeah. And you know what kids love? Like romance between appliances. Like it's such a bizarre impulse. A window in an appliance. Yeah. Just so weird. Uh, you know what else kids love? Um, Cloris Leachman and Christopher Lloyd. God, and there are some Carrie Tony, Yules. Tony Braxton. Tony dude. Braxton. What the hell? And Chaz Palminteri. Definitely my favorite character. Yeah, that is, um, you're talking about how it'd be fun to watch it kind of ironically. Like, I will say the celebrity cameos were definitely the most enjoyable part by a mile. It feels like they were just thrown out in front of the camera with like no instructions. Or, but they're like characters are so weird. Like, Christopher Lloyd is where they ride around a giant sombrero. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd and Jamie Presley uh, are these like, you know, Latino performers who like dance the tango and ride around in this giant sombrero. It's like, you couldn't find two like actors who like fit that a little better. Um, or if you knew you were going to work with Christopher Lloyd and her, like, why didn't you rework that? Rework? Yeah. And it's weird. Cause Christopher Lloyd is pretty much just playing the bongos. He has like no lines, right? Like no. One. And he does dance a little bit, but they like speed it up because he can't move. For comic maybe. effect, maybe? I thought it was for a comic effect, but then maybe it's just like he's so old, they speed it up so it looks like he's actually dancing. I don't know. Very weird characters. The balloons are like split between these like five realms uh, that are like ruled by these celebrities. Uh, and, you know, the Flying Sombrero is one. Cloris Leachman lives in this like polka dot tree house. She just loves circles. She seemed legit dizzy. Like she seemed like she was like, took one too many pills that morning. I mean, you would have to, (laughs) you found, that's what I was wondering with these celebrity cameos. Like, did they know what they were getting into? The money couldn't have been that great. Just imagine like your agent just signed you up. Like, Oh, you're going to do this kid's movie. It'll be great. And then you show up on set and you have to interact with, the oogie loves like and they're like i don't know just talk about circles or something because we're in polka dots she's like i love polka dots and circles and and circles circles she just like repeats herself it's very bizarre and her face is like very pale and really like scary honestly like that would give some kids it's a little uh whatever happened to baby jane in there like that like pancake on makeup yeah and she's like living with some what like raver yeah kid that's into squares and at the end when they're giving their presents to schloofy or (laughs) she get obviously she gives him a polka dot and then other girl gives him a square cool (laughs) 
<laughs> well, wait, I I do have to say that the Chaz uh, Palminteri yeah. stuff was uh, really, really fun. That was like my favorite. His realm is like a milkshake shop where they make disgusting, unconventional awful. milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could remember. Like there was one that was like pickle flavored for two. For it was like four different Gooby. kinds of pickles yeah. for Gooby. Oh my! <laughs> and it's like you know that movie where uh, Chaz Palminteri makes a pickle milkshake for Gooby. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I've seen that one. You wouldn't forget it. I will. And also the idea that the the cow that's making the shakes, it's like coming straight from her udder. This very weird stuff. <laughs> and they're like gallons long and Jay Edgar's watching this through windy window like from this like far off clubhouse and he's like I can't believe they had so many milkshakes <laughs> I feel like I was losing my goddamn mind <laughs> oh and man Chaz Palminteri is doing this like Hepcat like 50s jazz like cool guy hey yeah it's like this is for children right like little kids are supposed to find enjoyment in this I found enjoyment I in did it, too I, it's I was so weird at its best moments, it does approach kind of this surrealist, almost like, I guess like Pee Wee's big adventure kind of thing. I was thinking Big Top Pee Wee, actually. Or big Top, yeah. It all, it almost gets there at some points, especially like kind of towards the end with the flying sombrero hat. You're just like, this is trippy as hell, dude. Like At a certain point, it's difficult to tell the difference between the screensaver CGI and the physical back drops like there are some like physical production design parts but the movie is so fake and artificial that like your mind has a hard time differentiating between what's a physical object and what's terrible cheap cgi like you should be able to differentiate yeah, that but it should be glaringly obvious it's like hypnotizing where it's like hard to even tell what space you're in we have to go through the other two celebrities though because all of this is very strange uh <laughs> tony braxton lives in this like airplane hangar Basically playing herself, from what I could tell. Or playing a like maybe a more diva version of herself. The Surrounded movie... by roses, even though she's allergic. <laughs> so she's just sneezing the whole time. It's very, very strange. And she gives like a full Tony Braxton concert and the Oogie Loves just kinda watch and dance along. It feels like I've just like put the movie on pause so we could watch Tony Braxton do her thing and then get back she to She said she sounds yeah. Amazing. And she had a very low cut top on. So her boobs were basically out. <laughs> yeah. Which is weird. Did not fit the vibe Bad with the, the <laughs> pants dropping stuff the and the undertones between Wendy window and the J Edgar and the cow milking herself and feeding her uh, secretions to people in a milkshake. Shop. Yeah. The, those sexual <laughs> undertones. I really wish they weren't there. Uh, and then we have Bobbly Wobbly, yes. uh, played by Carrie Yule, second favorite, yeah, character. Uh, and he's called Bobbly Wobbly because he has that like sort of saddle thing going on, where his like legs are almost in like a half circle. Like there is, it's like <laughs> right. haunches are like stuck wide open, so he wobbles around as he walks. I love his. There's something ex- weirdly sexual about that too. I love his explanation for why he does it. He's just like, it's fun to wobble. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with that. Yeah. No. <laughs> And just uh, instructions to the kids during that that scene, like basically just get a, get up and wobble around. <laughs> Woo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. His his character was really good too. Those celebrity cameos are really fun. It's just really out of place and just no cohesion between any of them. So it's like almost a surprise every time you stumble into the next one. Like, what are we doing here now? Okay. And the fact that there is no cohesion in this 
Oogie Love's world makes it feel like a nightmare because it doesn't, it feels so divorced from reality or even like a, even if it's a fantasy realm, there's usually some, something kind of bringing it together. It feels like a real world, but this doesn't, it feels like a dream or a nightmare world. And then you have this like goldfish character they're carrying around. It's a little like the goldfish from cat in the hat where he's like the grump of the Oogie Loves crew. And he's like, when will this ever end? This adventure is going on. Like he's making, he's making you aware that none of this means anything. I think he's basically the voice of the grownups in the <laughs> audience. And then he's right because it does last forever. And then they lose all the goddamn balloons and you have to like blow kisses at them for, the, for them to come back down. <laughs> I lost It's it. interminable. They're like, oh my God, we just spent an hour and 20 minutes getting these balloons and then you idiots just like let them go. <laughs> and all it takes to get them back is just blow some kisses. So that this fucking pillow who doesn't even know like What's if he's awake or not <laughs> can have a happy birthday. <laughs> oh, even when, even during his birthday, he's just lying down looking very, still very tired. Oh, man. Well, this one is free on Hulu. Uh, the rest of them I had to, like, you know, track down through libraries. I think I actually paid to rent Delgo because I ran out of time for library trips. But uh, this one is accessible. And I think out of all the, like, you know, when you're looking for these, like, ultimate flops, like. You want it so bad it's good. This the, one approaches that. It's almost there. Yeah. I, w- I would recommend it to people. I think so. Maybe not by yourself. Maybe a couple willing participants and, like, some alcohol. It would be a fun, yeah. be a fun evening, but on the whole, I don't think these are all that bad. No, I think Rock the Casbah is like easily my pick for the worst. I would agree with that a hundred percent. It's not even like atrociously bad. It's just like so bland to me. I know you had other ones on here you thought were more bland than that one. Yeah, that one I thought was aggressively bad in a way that Jim and the Holograms and Collision weren't. I hated its attitude the most. Oh yeah, we're like disgusting. Collides like romantic sentimentality and Jim and the holograms like believe in yourself. Right, at least it like, had a good yeah message. The even, heart, the heart is corrupted. Even it, collide like it has that sticky sweet sentimentality that I think is interesting. Yeah, in the action movie, but rock the Casbah by far. And then I don't know. I guess my number two would probably be Delgo, even though I no, <laughs> you know I don't know. I kind of respect it in a way. I can almost stand up for Collide and Jem as being okay. I think those are fine. Delgo and Casbah tested my patience a lot. Yeah. And I will say Oogie loves, you know, for what it is, it's pretty fun. Again, like if you're with other people, I don't know just watching it alone like we did is the way to go, but it's super aggressive too. Like it, it's trying to wear you down, <laughs> which is kind of part of the fun of it. It's like this like gauntlet that you have to like live through. I, I I had fun with that one. Yeah, I mean, as a whole, though, like, I won't say I enjoyed watching all these movies, but it, it's just interesting to kind of tie up the whole theme of the podcast. Like, it's just interesting what movies flop and what which ones don't. And it seems like a combination of factors. But, I mean, I could see a universe where Jim and the Holograms made a good amount of money and then they did a sequel and it was like a semi-successful franchise but it just didn't work out for whatever reason i will say there's like a strong rock and roll element with at least three of these movies mm-hmm. uh between the soundtrack of casbah and the um you know gem is like a rock and roll movie right. and then oogie loves is like this 
you know, rock band of mascots. And I don't think rock and roll is very bankable right now. As far as like, I'm saying this in rock and fucking Bohemian Rhapsody has just made a ton of money. So maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But, well, or, but again, it, it, it could also do with like the time it came out, the mm-hmm. marketing behind it. But it's just, I don't know. It's just fascinating. The movies that completely bomb like this. And then there's others that are probably just as bad, if not worse, that make a shit ton of money. Yeah, I'm sure there's some Delgo equivalent that's made like hundreds of millions of dollars that I'm just like, why? Or even the movies that Delgo was trying to combat, that whole like Shrek, Minions type like fluff, that makes so much money. Yeah. I think superhero movies and kids CG animation makes like most of the uh, box office every year. Hmm. So I could see why they thought they could get away with with that one. Um, It it failed miserably. (laughs) Well, if you want to see us talk about slightly more respectable fare. Our next episode we're doing with James in early January is going to be, uh, you know, best films of the year. We'll have Brittany back on for that as well. This is always fun. Uh, Cece and I are going to do two more episodes in December. They're going to be a little more highfalutin. And right now I just collected all of the, uh, films we saw at New Orleans film festival. Uh, we saw 10 features and I just sort of like ranked and reviewed them all. You can find that on, our letterbox there's a list and mm-hmm. on the main website somewhere around uh late november there's a noff ranked and reviewed list so we do talk about classy stuff every now and then it's not always bargain bin trash like i said you can't appreciate those in, until you watch oogie loves i will say that after watching the five flops and then watching fearless like the difference in quality was striking it's like <laughs> oh wow there's good movies i forgot that I like for- <laughs> yeah you're in your little hole of suckiness for a yeah. while well, thank you for Fearless, because that's a great film. Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, had a, something to change it up, but yeah. there's a lot to look forward to. And you can watch that for free on Vudu right now. Um, there's some commercial breaks, but it's like Walmart streaming channel. Um, so if you want to give Fearless a shot and you don't want to spend money, it's free on there. And uh, we'll come back in a couple of weeks with something a little classier. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.